This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Jane and we've got a, another Pack to the Rafters show for you tonight. We're talking to Bill Hempel, D. Grebner, and lastly, Senator Larissa Waters. First up tonight, we've got Bill Hempel, and he's talking about how farmers are adapting to climate change. Have a listen to this. We're going back to the land tonight as Bill Hample will talk to us about farmers adapting to climate change. He's written a book called Against the Grain where he interviews 14 farmers who've adapted to climate change and are the innovators in this field. So welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, Bill. Thank you, Barry. Can you tell us first about your childhood growing up in the Mallee? Uh, my father was a World War I soldier settler, uh, but we moved away from the farm in 1942 to this tiny town where he, where he was the postmaster. It wasn't a very big place, not a lot to do, so I spent most, all the summers on the wheat trucks going out hel- helping. Uh, on one occasion I actually looked after a farm, um, milking the cows and so on, and, and I, of course, spent a lot of time with friends uh, twins who were friends of mine on their farm. So I was pretty thoroughly immersed in, in, in the farming community. Would you say it was prosperous farming land back then? Um, well, in the f- I remember in the 40s, uh, the rainfall, it's an average rainfall of 12 inches or th- about 300 millimetres, but it got down to about 6 inches uh, for a couple of years. So, no, lots of sand hills around. Mm-hmm. Then things p- started to pick up. I mean, better seasons, and w- as a result of the Mallee Research Station farmers' Uh, knowledge of uh, dry, dry land farming improved enormously. Better plant breeds, ways of minimising uh, soil erosion, those sorts of things. Okay, well, it looks like the climate has changed in the Mallee in the last generation. We've had programs about falling rainfall and a general drying out right across the southern part of the continent. Um, what adaptations can farmers make to that? Well, um, First of all, the minimum till is now fairly widespread and that started a little over 30 years ago, which means that uh, it's a way of helping to retain the soil moisture. Uh, The stubble is kept on the the land 
uh, and of course there's less erosion with the that, um, and that means that the carbon content is maintained. Um, different crops, um, not, not overgrazing, of course. Well, one spectacular example was um, uh, one of the farmers I interviewed. He experimented with the uh, chemical which is put in potted plants to retain the moisture. He did this on a couple of 20-acre sections and he found that the yield benefits far outweighed the cost of this uh, particular chemical. From and what were the results? Well, a fairly significant increase in yields. Wow. And, and because it extended the moisture uh, in the soil for about a month, mm. it, it, it meant longer growing season. So yeah. that was part of the picture. I remember his, his saying that. I, I see farming as probably quite a lonely job, you know, especially if you're an innovator mm. and all the other farmers in the region, when they get together, don't want to know about some new schemes you've got. But you've mentioned land care as an organisation yeah. that comes through in practically every chapter of your book, helping farmers. And I'd like you to tell us what does land care do? And, you know, especially on the human level, mental health as well, I think people really get a lot of help from just joining together with like-minded people. So what is land care? Well, just going back a little bit, the, the, we know that one solution or recipe for mental health is keeping connected to mm. friends and, and family and, and neighbours. Uh, um, so one of the big benefits of land care, which is basically an organisation for maximising the diff- diffusion or spread of science mm. uh, and ideas, it, one of the benefits is they meet together mm. and talk about new methods um, and they bring in experts. I mean, there's one uh, chap from Melbourne University who, whose name came up a couple of times. Mm. It's an, uh, an avenue for bringing in science. Uh, it's also uh, a means of uh, dispersing government mon- funds. Mm. Uh, and, of course, the, the third benefit is fellowship. Mm. And, and there was, the issue of loneliness didn't come up with these farmers uh, yeah. because they have such a diver- diverse context. And, and some of them are on... Uh, um, Ross, for example, is on... Uh, is a state leader in, in land care, oh. and there are others who uh, are in c- constant communication with yeah. other land care members. So, is land care well supported by the government? Well, um, my understanding is I, I saw figures to show that there's c- cutbacks in la- the funding to land mm. care with the advent of the uh, coalition government. I, I, I can't comment on the current level of funding, mm. but that seemed to me to be a a highly retrograde step yeah. because there's n- I couldn't see any downside of land, se- land care. Well, I, I interviewed some farmers up at Ararat and they talked about the Carbon Farming Initiative, mm. which was part of, I think, from the Gillard government, but it was carried on by the Direct Action Plan. Now, they said they hadn't seen many results of the Direct Action mm. Plan. That's about 18 months ago. And I wonder what is happening um, They'd planted thousands of trees and they had overseas volunteers, you know, they're planting more trees. They'd re-established the catchment of the Manning River, you know, real achievements, visible achievements. But they said there wasn't much money flowing in to give them an incentive to go on. And it was very costly with the fencing that you had to put around the trees to stop the cows getting in there. I'd like to know why the carbon incentive isn't sort of going full bore and getting some sort of public recognition and public support. Well, there are, are some difficulties in 
measuring the benefits of tree planting. I mean, yeah. it became very complicated, and you probably, yeah. Peter, Peter, yeah. the chap you interviewed, might have talked about that. Just level of coverage, mm. um, how, how to how, how to assess the car- the carbon sequestration of a mm. certain um, density of forest. Uh, that was one, and um, also measuring carbon content in soil is devilishly tricky mm. because it can vary from one part of the block to another and there's um it's also uh, as as um one of the other farmers said it with you get a, a heat wave and a lot mm. of the uh, carbon in the soil is lost mm. so it it's very there is just a, there are just a couple of difficulties but i think peter might have pointed out to you when you interviewed him that uh, there wasn't a decent price for carbon for, for the carbon uh the credits. No. So you've got to have a, an economic incentive. We, we're asking a lot of farmers. Yes. As, as um, Doug Brown said, look, we, we, we have all these skills, and he listed all the skills mm. that you have to have to yeah. be a farmer, and we, we're expected to do all the innovation. We take all the risks. Yeah. Now, there has to be some recognition of the risks taken. Okay, you don't want to put good money after bad. No. But there, there are a lot of farmers who are, are risk takers in the good sense, who are experimenting, mm. uh, are thinking. And I, I should mention that that's a, a feature of all of these people, open-mindedness. Mm. It doesn't matter. About half of the ones I interviewed did have a university degree. But it doesn't matter. Mm. Um, uh, the chap, he... Uh, he has no tertiary qualification. He is a brilliant m- m- engineer, mm. absolutely brilliant. He's making his third oil press, for <laughs> example. He thought, well, there, this is one way um, of uh, turning marginal land over some yeah. some value, and he wants to use it as a fuel, to, so we're not dependent on fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, so there's a certain logic in it, but he has now got his third oil press which is running entirely with soil, solar cells mm. he's got enlisted the aid of a guy from Adelaide University who is helping him use uh, ultrasound <laughs> in the purification process mm. now you just one has just open mouth yes. at this yeah. Well, you know, we have a new Prime Minister who's changed the tone a bit, yeah. if not the policies, yeah. and he's talking about innovation mm. and nimble spirit, which is exactly mm. what you're describing. These yeah. people should be, you know, the ones who are being promoted, shouldn't mm. they? Yes, I, I, absolutely, yes. And, and there is now there's plenty of um, material uh, telling politicians what farmers are doing. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard to find them, and you've found yeah. a number of these. Yeah. Uh, you went to a, a cattle farm that I, sound, I thought sounded just lovely. I, th- I like the sound of the people, actually. They, it's called Bimberdine, and it's oh, on yes, Phillip yes. Island. And that couple spoke about how they planted trees. They were very committed to planting trees all through their lives. I think they'd been there for probably 40 years, and they've planted a lot of trees. But the the people who'd helped them do that were like suburban gardeners who were just mm. growing seedlings mm-hmm. in their backyard all over Victoria. And I thought the listeners might like to be involved in that and, um, you know, volunteering to plant as well. Mm. I know it's still very expensive to fence in the areas that you need on a farm, but that, that help from wider society. And also I think it's very good for city people or people in the suburbs who 
who need to have a kind of investment in the country, who mm. have a kind of connection. Like people go to farmers markets, they f- therefore learn a little bit about the costs of farming. But uh, if you were planting seedlings in your backyard and then you know replanting them on Phillip Island or on someone's farm, I think that would give you a feeling of helping and, and ownership. Do you know any schemes that are like that that people who are listening now might be involved with? Well, not not exactly, but I know that that is done mm. quite, uh, quite a lot. I mean, it, it probably Mr Google might help yeah. me give the names of organisations, but um, yeah, and it, I agree entirely. It, it, it gives... There's nothing like nurturing plants yeah. to make, give you some feeling of connectedness with nature. I yes. mean, and, and that's what we need. Mm. Urban life mm. deprives us of that, mm. of that a lot. Um, can I just go back a little yeah. bit? Um, something I worked out, something like two million trees have been planted by these 14 farmers. Oh. Now, it, it varies a lot. Yeah. Um, in the case of Mark Wooden, they've planted over a million. I mean, oh. they have large resources, large yeah. property. But uh, the tree planting is and not and not only planting trees but re- retaining. Mm. Mark has got some brilliant old red gums and I think I point out in the mm. book that some of these are up to 500 years old. Oh. Uh, Ross MacDonald mm. uh, has th- trees there with Aboriginal scars on them. Mm. Well, I think a lot of farmers seem to say, oh, we can't afford to uh, dedicate this land just to, to uh, trees, just yeah. for birds to fly in and just to sequester a bit of carbon. We need that land to have our stock on it. And just at the moment in this very dry summer, you can go around the country. It looks dreadful. A lot of paddocks are just eaten down to nothing and there's one or two, three trees on the horizon so some farms are either overstocking or I don't know what they're doing they're wearing the land down to nothing another dairy farmer yeah. they show that the multiple multiple benefits of trees far outweigh mm. the loss any um, loss of profit from the loss of land and Mark Wooden uh, said he has mm. 88,000 sheep now they put a lot of money into breeding of sheep he said you can wipe out hundreds of thousands of dollars if there's a sudden cold spell. Yeah. Trees provide protection yes. to your livestock. Now, there are other benefits, of course, such as retention of soil moisture, mm-hmm. cutting down the wind, quite apart from the aesthetic benefits. Yeah. And, and Mark and Eve, uh, Mark's wife, Eve, Eve Cantor, said she did a survey and she found that um, they found over 100 uh, species of bird on their property. Mm. So the, the, the absolute joy that these people, and, and the Andersons the same. Talking to Bill Hample here about climate adaptation <coughs> on the farm, um, we've talked about government efforts to plant trees and give us incentives mm. for carbon sinks, but compared to the United States and the EU, uh, Australian farms are not very much subsidised and yet each farm produces enough food to feed 600 people and I think in your book it says that means 150 people at home and 450 overseas so this land needs to be protected, these people need to be given Mm. help and support um, not least from the public who demand cheap food and and perhaps could pay more for you know so that the uh, people can stay on the land but what changes are needed from federal and state government to help us reduce carbon emissions on farms and to make them more resilient? Well, I think um, 
a number of the things that we've talked about. I mean, in dairying, for example, carrying on the research, as, as you probably know, there's a sort of sliding scale uh, ways of reducing methane mm. running from application of oils and tannins right up to selective breeding. Um, now, those that requires research, extension, um, yeah. The, 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 the different breeds so uh, also in dairying there are different ways of um, when you use machinery for pumping mm. uh, currently because milking occurs early in the morning and late at night it minimises the value of solar yeah. for, for driving motors but uh, as Marion MacDonald the dairy farmer yeah. said there are other ways she's talking about heat exchange now BZD have done a lot of work mm. on, I understand on heat exchange mm. both in the domestic sphere but like a, a lot of dairy farmers they spread the nutrient over yeah. the soil but they, they have to also watch the um, ammonium yeah. production if you do spread urine yeah. over the soil uh, but that is a way of bringing in consultants. So yeah. that all that backing for farming, it's a, it's a big scientific enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there are ways of look, looking at the issue. What are the needs of, far, of farming, yeah. of, of what I call progressive farming? Yes. And these are all progressive yeah. farmers. Yeah. How can we support them? Be agile, to yeah. use that language. Yeah. What more would you like to add? That I, I've asked you very specific questions, but the overall view of climate adaptation, um, how are these people leading the way? Well, I think that in various ways, obviously through land care, through there are uh, lots of local organisations that they're involved in, and I think um, when they put stuff on the web, more people hear about it. There's a little bit of uh, the daring Australian Dairy Association, I think, has farmer um, model farmers on their web. Mm. Um, I, I mentioned uh, John Ive. Yeah. I mean, Mark Mark Wooden. I, John Ive has given all these talks. Yeah. He has visited from about twenty over twenty countries, coming to him. Um, Mark Wooden has various groups touring. I think I was on the eightieth group. Mm. going through his property. Yeah. Uh, they were a um, p- mixture of land care and, local, and farmers yes. going through. So different ways. Yeah. You know. It sounds like these people are giving more than they're getting. You know, they're giving out, aren't they, a lot. They're doing more than just growing food on their farm. They're yeah. giving, yeah. inspiring people. And I think you said Mark Wooden has an even greater reach in sort yeah. of trying to promote yeah. clean oh, yeah. energy yeah. policies. So they're giving a lot back. What do you think the consumer should give them? You mentioned in your book people are quite happy to buy a bag of carrots for $1 or oh, cheap oh, yeah. milk and think, oh, that's good, I've got a bargain, without thinking. How could anyone produce? food for this cheaper price what do you think the consumers could do to show a bit more solidarity well I think that um, the Coles and Woolworths could do a bit to, to explain how the food's produced mm. um, even put be honest about the costs of producing the food to the farmer mm. um, the returns to the farmer yeah. And say, you know, if they get a, a cent for each lettuce or something, mm. or um, 
and the milk. I mean, be quite upfront about it. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, though. No, no, I, I'm you know pie in the sky sort of <laughs> stuff. Um, but, but, but the consumers need the information, though, don't they? I mean, it's not people. If you can buy a bag of carrots for a dollar, you will do because it's cheaper. Oh, yes, and it's yeah. but it's it's sort of a wrong, a wrong. It's killing some farmers. Yeah, I would imagine yeah, they're just yeah. going right off the land. They can't keep producing like well, that. Well, um, yes, uh, farmers markets are doing a lot. I was at the Collingwood farmers market on the weekend, and, mm. and that is showing, giving people appreciation of. Mm. Of farming, they talk to farmers and yeah. gives them an outlet. And as I document in the book, the this press is, has not been terrific on climate change. In fact, abysmal in, mm-hmm. in some sections. So there's not a lot about um, a, a explaining farming to the urban population. Yeah. We are um, more and more concentrated in the big cities, mm. and I think. So the media could do more. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say? One of the farmers said farming is the triumph of optimism over reality. Yes. What, 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 um, what other kind of uh, insights did you get about their attitude? They uh, embrace diversity. They see multiple solutions. I mean, I think there's a, that's when you look at change, change often has to come through many sources. If you look at energy, for example, yeah. or water in urban areas, Instead of whacking up a, a multi-billion-dollar desal plant, mm. there are other things that you can do to help um, retain the water that is available. Yeah. So they uh, they're on on the um, very alert to the possibilities in of different things contributing yeah. to the well-being of their farm. They get a joy from talking with people, mm. and from my from my point of view, there's no greater pleasure than mm. talking to people who know a lot and mm. are enthusiastic about telling you about it. Okay. Well, thank you very much for telling us about them and I hope listeners will read your book called Against the Grain. It's 14 Farmers Adapt to Climate Change and the author is Bill Hample. Indeed, and we'll put a link to Bill's book on our podcasts. The podcast can be found, of course, at 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the left-hand side to to our Beyond Zero community podcast as well as our sister show podcast, Beyond Zero, uh, that plays live on a Friday morning at 8.30, which I've no doubt you already know because you listen to it, right? The other place to find our podcast is at the bze.org.au website and follow the links. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. And to keep 3CR going, we're going to be asking for your help uh, in from the 15th to, I believe, the 21st of February. There's a, a subscriber drive to assist keeping 3CR on air uh, in its 40th year now. 
Next up, we have Dee Grebner from The Tree Project. And The Tree Project is dedicated to restoring urgently needed Indigenous vegetation and repairing Victoria's damaged ecosystems. Here's Dee Grebner in conversation with Vivian. Our guest this evening is Dee Grebner. Um, she's speaking to us about The Tree Project. Welcome, Dee. Hi. Thank you for having me on. Oh, I'm most happy to, I, to have discovered about your tree project, which Bill Hample talked to us about. Can you just tell us, or tell the listeners, what the pro- tree project is really all about? Tree project is about um, basically making revegetation affordable. Um, it's been realised uh, that one of the main reasons that landholders don't get the revegetation done, even if they may understand and want to do it, uh, is the cost. So not only are your seedlings um, part of the cost, you've got your tree guarding, fencing, yeah. and so forth. So what Tree Project does is we train volunteers to grow indigenous seedlings in little mini nurseries in their backyards. So each grower gets seven boxes that are like the broccoli size mm-hmm. boxes mm-hmm. with 48 tubes um, in each box. And um, the landholder pays for the, the supplies, the soil, the tubes, and mm-hmm. so forth. So it brings that cost of revegetation down to uh, 500 seedlings we can put out at $175. Oh, that's, that's very good. So, and it also creates relationships between people in the city and people in the country. We have some landholders who have projects that have gone for 10 years and have had the same growers grow for them. Um, the growers go out and plant for them and help becoming part of that project and taking a stewardship in the revegetation and the repair of the land. Well, a lot of our listeners will be very keen to hear about this, I think, because a lot of people always say, what can we do? You know, and if you live in the city, you can grow things on your balcony maybe or in a small garden. But to actually participate in helping a farmer um, put in massive amounts of trees, numbers of trees, would be really quite a good project. And I'd like to know, what are the benefits of planting more trees on farms? On the property itself, you have... um, Landholders frequently are interested in windbreaks for their cattle or um, re-establishing their waterways. They, um, with the removal of the trees, you don't get the rain being pulled into the earth any longer. It just runs off and you have flood situations. Whereas if you put your trees in and, and the understory and the grasses, so you're breaking up that soil and that soil becomes a sponge again, it brings that water back into the waterways and you have a slow seepage back in. Mm. Sometimes it's to protect the dams, to keep um, some shade on the dams so that it's not evaporating so quickly. And um, on the side of many environmentalists, they can look at what a farmer would look at as a windbreak and they say, look at that amazing corridor for animals. How does it help in counteracting climate change? Well, it um, cools the earth when you put some shade on it. I had one landholder, uh, one land care group, give me a call one year and said, we're going to put an order in this year. And I said, did you finally get some rain? And he goes, no, just the opposite. I'm sick of watching it float past to the, mm. to the mountains. So what putting the trees in do, does is it begins to cool the earth because the heat pushes the clouds away and they just keep going past to the ocean or to the mountains mm. or whatever, wherever there is some foliage. Moisture attracts moisture, so when you're putting the trees in and cooling the earth and creating a a proper ecosystem, you get what's called transpiration. Mm. And that moisture, when clouds come past, that coolness will pull the rain back down. 
So um, trees definitely apart from the carbon sink that um, a lot of people are using, putting trees in to offset travel and stuff like that, to bring the rains and cool the earth um, and so forth, that revegetation is crucial. Well, these uh, carbon sinks, I I haven't heard much of uh, offsets. You know, people just lightly say, I paid an offset on this trip, but the people who give offsets, do they actually invest in... Forests you, you've or... got companies like Greenfleet mm-hmm. or Carbon Neutral, um, and they make it their business to find the properties where the trees will be planted and take on, um, there has to be a covenant put on the land so the trees can't be mm-hmm. harvested for a given number of years. Yeah. Um, and there is um, a remuneration that goes to the landholder who decides to to do a carbon sink like that. Um, It's a little bit more than I completely understand, but you Mm. do have your organizations like Greenfleet and Carbon Neutral and other organizations like that that um, make it their business, literally, to to plant those carbon sinks. I I wish it would catch on a bit more because I've... You know, when I go around traveling across the countryside, I see an awful lot of really quite barren land, especially now in the summer when it's nibbled down to nothing and the uh, one tree in the paddock seems to be inadequate for the many sheep who are trying to find a bit of shade and I think some farmers must think it's too expensive to fence off some of their land and dedicate it to native trees or to a windbreak when they could be cropping or grazing on that land and I Mm. wonder is that the majority do you think or half half? I think I think that the idea is changing Mm. I think that uh, we go to see more to the the Farm Expo into the Ballarat Farm Expo and they're always having um, the talks where people are coming in and explaining to landholders that in fact if they change some of the management regimes that their yield will improve, that they can give over a certain amount to trees which will stop the wind from racing across their paddocks, um, get in some, teach about dung beetle and different fertilizers and putting different sorts of grasses in so that you are breaking that soil up, um, getting aeration in, getting the, the moisture in. And um, so that there, there is a, a change in understanding mm. of best management practices. And, and it, it definitely does include getting your waterways reestablished and getting your dams reestablished because mm. you're um, getting a slow seepage of that water into those waterways. So... Um, with with knowledge and information, and yeah. it is changing. When you go out to the public, what sort of people come up to you and, and ask for help and are interested in getting these suburban, um, you know, gardeners on their side? Um, all sorts of people. It's um, as I'm saying, we go to Seymour in particular and the Ballarat Farm Expo, and we just have a display with pictures, and people mm. have a look. You can have a picture of this degraded landscape, and then a picture of what it looks like once the trees have gone in and um, when people can see that kind of comparison it perks their interest a lot of people are interested as I said when they walk past and see I can get 500 seedlings for $175 Mm. wow Mm. I can afford to do this Mm. now in saying that that if you collect your own seed um, it's 175 if you have to order your seed from a regional seed bank mm. that may be another $40 or $50 yeah. depending upon the kind of seed that you want to order but a lot of it being put off is people thinking it it's just not affordable mm. I can't do this 
Well, that's still so a lot cheaper. We're there to make it affordable. Yeah, to get that's, it done. that's still a lot cheaper than if you got it from a nursery. Each, you know, gum tree would be costing $50 or something, I think, you know. Yeah. And, you, and you need to order ahead. Our um, distribution time is now mm. in the summer, but the orders come in in August. Mm. Uh, or we send them out in August, they come back in September. We get um, all of the seed packaged and ready for the growers. Uh, so there's one distribution at the end of November. Uh, those seedlings are ready in June, late May, June. Mm-hmm. And we have another distribution taking place of the kits, the growing kits and seed to the growers um, at the end of January. Mm-hmm. And those seedlings will be ready in June, okay. end of July, um, August period. Um, which is good for areas that freeze and yes. you need to do a later planting. Yeah. Well, you said the farmers can supply seeds from their own trees. Is that, um, is that because those trees are really proved to be suited to that region where they live? That had the been idea? best practice for a very long time, mm. saying um, Land Care and Greening Australia were saying that you needed to get your seed within 50 kilometres of okay. the area. Yeah. That idea is changing a little bit now. Uh, they are saying it's okay, you should maybe think about climate change and bring the seed in from drier areas. Mm. So um, some, of, some, of, some of the thinking is changing a little bit yeah. now um, because the climate is changing. The reason for getting the seed in the local area is that it would be acclimatized to your local conditions. Yeah. But the local conditions seem to be changing. Yes, that's the tragedy for a lot of people. I, mm. from Bill Hempel's interviews, you know, you can see people in areas are, oh, you know, quite put out by these um, changes and the unpredictability of the weather too. So drought proofing the, the property is probably very important. Mm, yes, get get the water in. Yep. that's the idea. Cool it off. Tell us, uh, if someone's listening who just lives in Melbourne and and has a bit of a suburban garden, how could they get involved? They can have a look at our website. Um, It's treeproject.org.au. There's a section in there that has um, ordering the seeds, ordering the seedlings for the landholder, and there's a section in there for, um, for the grower. If you're interested in being um, involved, there's a volunteer section. Otherwise, they can give us a call in the office at um, 9650-9477. That's 9650-9477. And um, we'd be really happy to have a chat. Our process for this year is completed, as I was saying. The last distribution is taking place at the end of January, but... um, we take expressions of interest, and then growers do have training. We have training in Bendigo and Geelong and in Melbourne. Oh, we have little pockets. Yep. We're beginning to have a little pocket in Ballarat as yep. well, yep. so that we've got growers that can service their local landholders. Mm-hmm. And so um, we teach everything. There's also a section uh, which we call the Grower Manual, where you can have a look and see how to grow seedlings if you're interested in doing that yourself i can Um, see this is this would be a very good way um school's just starting now and i wondered if school gardeners or uh creches or even retirement villages you know people like that who have got some land and they would like to learn a bit about garden they might think oh i don't have green fingers i've no idea but this would be a good way to get them in wouldn't it urban the urban people are the ones that grow them in the tube mm-hmm. they have as i mentioned before in the styrofoam boxes and yeah. having them in the backyard 
Um, so what you basically need is a position in the sun where you can get a good five hours of direct sunlight yeah. um, and be able to provide some shade, either with shade cloth or being able to put them under a tree when conditions get horrific. Mm. Um, sometimes you just need to get them under protection as well. Um, so it takes about a six-month growing period, as I said, if you pick them up. If you pick up your growing supplies, which are your tubes and your soil and fertilizer and seed, you will grow them in what's called a forestry tube. Oh. And six months later, they will be ready to be planted out mm. onto the land. A lot of times I encourage schools and other places like that who want to give it a try to order some supplies from Tree Project if they can and grow the seedlings and use it as a fundraiser. Uh-huh. So that family, their people in the neighborhood can buy the understory, you know, acacias, your tea yeah. trees, your bottle brushes and stuff like that. Um, because it does take a six-month process, that means weekends and holidays. Yeah. So it requires a teacher who is prepared to do that. To go and water them, for example. Yes, exactly. They've mm-hmm. got to be watered every day and on really bad days twice a day. Yeah. So that's just part of the process. There are some schools who have been able to manage doing that. Yes. Um, but usually, usually I get them to give it a go, you know, for yourselves the first time so we're not disappointing a landholder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and see how the process goes. And if they go, this was fantastic, it all worked <laughs> really well, and then they're ready to commit as well to make, you know, knowing that their school is... Um, got the facility to, to manage it. Well, thank you very much for telling us that, Dee. I really love this idea. It's very simple and it's just so educational. I think everyone's gaining something from it. And I just wonder, you know, could you tell us some examples of people who, who have done the planting and watered them every day for six months and uh, perhaps gone out to plant the, the seeds on the farms? Do they get uh, an insight in what a country life's like or farming life? Well, they, um, after... Well, definitely, going out for planting is a great deal of fun. It's so rewarding to see the babies that you've grown yeah. put out onto the land and then go back the year later and see that they're taller than you are. And, and years later, and you know, we have um, people who are bringing their children now. Um, Tree Project has been going for 25 mm. years, so mm. we look at the picture sometimes and go, oh, my God, look at that so-and-so. Yeah. And, you know, going back and seeing that um, the efforts that they put in in their own backyard, just nurturing these little seedlings to be planted out in the countryside, end up being amazing forests. Yeah, I we think... have one landholder at a Colac that bought a sheep farm, which is was nibbled to the nub, you might mm. call it, and um, he put the trees back in, and it brought back the waterways and brought back the wetlands, and he sent me a picture of a platypus paddling up the creek uh-huh. out of the area. So those are the kind of things that you just, I don't know how to put words to yes, it. It's no. just, it's, you want to say magical or something yes, yes. like that, but it is. It's like a sheep farm has been turned right back into beautiful wetlands yeah. and, and a beautiful forest and you know, just yeah. a really thriving ecosystem. That's wonderful. Well, we have to end there, but I'm really glad, you know, the government's got all these initiatives for Green Army and carbon initiatives and everything, but I think this is something that people can do by themselves quickly, like that. They can get involved with you. So yes. if, you're, if they're listening, please, listeners, just check out the website treeprojectand.org and give, the num- au. Au and give the number again, please, Dee. 9650 
Okay. Um, there is another tree project, which was when the fires were on, the blacksmiths did this huge tree. Yes. With metal leaves. So you have to be a little careful when you go to look for tree project because we are at treeproject.org.au. Okay. So That's... don't be confused if you accidentally find a large metal tree. No. <laughs> All right. Blacksmiths. Okay, well, look, thank you very much for that, and good luck with your project. Okay, thank well, thank you for have, speaking to us today. Bye-bye. I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR, Treaty Now. The next story is out of step with the world. I asked Serenate Senator Larissa Waters about her experience at the Paris Climate Conference. Larissa is a senator for Queensland and she's the deputy leader of the Greens in the Australian Parliament. She said she realised for the first time that Australia was really out of step with the rest of the world and that there is in fact an unstoppable global momentum towards clean energy. I knew that was the case, but I'd never really experienced it firsthand. So I personally came away from that conference feeling, in fact, very optimistic about the future, whilst acknowledging that the details of the agreement themselves that were reached of course don't get us anywhere near what we need to do to keep to a safe climate Um, and of course the science is evolving around what a safe climate even means we used to think it was two degrees and now the science is clear that it's really one and a half is the highest that we should go if we want to have any chance of preserving coral reefs and even at one and a half we lose 90% of our coral reefs and then have to effectively regenerate them So to cut a long story short, I think the gravity of the situation was uh, was there, but it's not reflected in the political agreement that was struck. But what I was excited about was the uh, review mechanism that says that in five years' time, countries have to review their um, emissions reductions pledges and they need to make them more ambitious. And what I think will happen is that in, in five years' time, we will see so much happen. We will see clean energy continue to become more and more um, available, cheaper and cheaper to produce, and just you know, infinitely better for economic as well as environmental reasons. So I'm actually really hopeful that in five years' time, we'll see some serious increase in those emissions reductions targets, which ultimately should put us on track by end of century to stabilise at one and a half degrees. Well, I, I know you met with a lot of people there. You must have done a lot of networking. And I saw one photo of you with the, the Climate Guardian Angels. And I think you were delivering some letters from Australian school kids, which we heard about mm. from the Guardian Angels in an earlier program. Mm. How did that go? Oh, look, it was a really wonderful opportunity to hear firsthand from all sorts of people working in the area. Like I said before, there were some magnificent Australian scientists over there that I had the great opportunity to sit down with and really pick their brains on. Mm. I mean, we, you know, we've just got such fantastic people contributing to this international issue. But, of course, I met with a whole lot of other groups as well, including the wonderful Climate Guardian Angels, who are a group of just ordinary Australian citizens, um, many of whom are from Victoria, some of whom are from Queensland, including June Norman, who's a friend of mine. She's a, um, a grandmother now. I think she's in her very late 60s, and mm. she's been a really strong and passionate campaigner on the climate as well as on the Great Barrier Reef. So it's lovely to see her join the Angels. 
and they had collected a whole stack of letters from school kids around the country that were begging the Australian government to take their future seriously and to do what was necessary to act on the climate and, and protect the wonderful natural icons that we have and you know do the right thing in terms of developing nations and the future of the world for all of the species we share it with. So it was a real honour to receive a selection of those letters and then um, deliver them to the Australian delegation at the, at the talks. Um, the Minister was not uh, you know, in the room at the time, so I gave them to a public servant and asked them to commit to pass mm. them on to the minister. So who knows where they ended up, but mm. it would have sent a strong message, I hope, that that's a bit of a reality check about what the stakes are. Back in Australia, many citizens were appalled that the Paris Agreement didn't show a clear path to wind down the production of fossil fuels. We had President Anate Tong on this program saying no new minds. Very clear English. But the Paris Agreement was all weaselly and difficult to follow. It didn't say anything as clear as that. And Malcolm Turnbull failed to support the New Zealand initiative to at least wind down the subsidies to coal, oil and gas so that they are at least on an even playing field with renewable energy. And then just before Christmas, Greg Hunt approved Adani's massive Carmichael mine in Queensland. He gave the drug dealers defence, saying the responsibility for reducing fossil fuel dependency is with other countries. So I asked Larissa, what more can we do? I mean, what is it going to take for the government and the opposition to get the message that we need to plan for a future post-coal and that, in fact, that future is now? Uh, I think it's a real tragedy that you're seeing workers sacked by the thousands without that plan for retraining and redeployment. Now, we Greens have done some thinking around that. It's obviously an enormous task um, and we think it's a task that the government of the day should be dedicating serious resources to, but we've turned our minds to it with the capacity that we've got and we think that there is real potential to use the resources um, of the companies involved um, and particularly as regards their rehabilitation obligations mm. and to have them put some money that is to cover the cost of rehabilitation into a kitty up front which could then be used not just for the rehab costs, but the interest on those funds could be used to retrain workers for the inevitable decline of those um, coal and other mining industries and retrain them into the clean energy and clean tech and services sector um, that, is, that is the future that is now. So we think that there is um, some real work that needs to get done and we've given it some preliminary thought and think that there's a number of ways that you could do that funding. But unfortunately, we're not hearing that sort of talk from the two big parties at the moment. The Greens' policy was to find out the gap between the bonds that mines have to put down and the actual cost of rehabilitation. Each mine will have to pay into a federal fund and the interest on this will be spent on the jobs transition. This can be either spent on attracting new clean industries to a coal region or to retrain workers and create local employment. I, was, um, I attended several um, uh, public hearings in the uh, Hunter Valley area last year and one of them was over the Rio Tinto mine at Bolga where they want to expand and that's been a very high profile case, you know, the David and Goliath story, it's a little town. 
But um, that mine has been approved. And at the time, in that hearing, uh, they mentioned that they already had a bond. Rio Tinto had, had already put down some millions mm. to uh, rehabilitate the mine. But now they're going to expand it. And when you look at that mine, I looked at it, it's like the Grand Canyon. It is mm. enormous. I'm sure you can see it from space. And, uh, and one of the figures quoted there was $2 billion. It would cost $2 billion, with a B, to rehabilitate. And even then, rehabilitation, there was an expert on rehabilitation who said it's actually very tricky to rehabilitate it's skillful work and I would just like to know you know can't the federal government step in and use the weapon of the Paris Agreement to say look now this is out of step with the world we're not going to expand this mine and we're not going to open the Galilee but we can't can't the federal government sort of override this because the state governments just keep approving this at the public hearing I would say 90% of the people there said don't expand it and uh, really they still went on and approved it well, of course, the federal government could. Um, it's not so much an overriding of state approvals because constitutionally they can't do that, but often these large mines require federal environmental approval. And sadly, there's never been a coal mine that's been rejected at that federal level or, in, in, to my recollection, at least in Queensland, there hasn't been one rejected at the state level either. Um, but in terms of what the feds could do, absolutely they could start that transition by saying look it's really clear we've got to make a change folks and not only is this economically required because look at all of the sackings and look at this total slump in the price um, but the rest of the world actually you know doesn't want this dirty product anymore it wants our clean energy and hey there's more jobs in renewables let's get to it and we've got a lot of work to do but it's all exciting stuff for Australia because it's a great potential for job creation it's a great potential for economic prosperity for us and it's a way that we can safeguard the beautiful natural assets that so proudly make us Australian, mm. like the Great Barrier Reef, like our majestic rainforests mm. that are so climate dependent and yet are so part of our national identity and we're so proud of them. I think there really is goodwill there in the community to tackle this problem and it just is going to take a big kick up the rear end for the government to understand that this is something that people care about. Yeah. What about state governments? They seem to stand to lose a lot if coal um, really is in a structural decline and collapses. Um, we've seen rehabilitation costs after the floods. And um, I just realised that around the world, climate change is already having a, a financial impact on, on countries and state governments, local governments. How's that going to affect Queensland? Well, this is the problem. Of course, if we fail to address climate change and we continue to have our head in the sand, then it's going to cost us an awful lot, not only in, in human toll, um, both emotional and physical and infrastructure impacts, um, but, but on those beautiful natural assets that deserve our protection. Now, the state government's got a lot to answer for because it's been one of the main culprits in propping up coal across the country, not just in Queensland, where I'm from. Um, and often it says it's because it makes coal makes the government money through royalties and, and various taxes. But actually, when you look at the budget books of state governments, they are frequently subsidising these operations mm. so much, or they're offering to build the infrastructure for them. Like in Queensland, there's talk about the railway being funded no more by the state government, but possibly now by the federal government. If you'd actually look at what what state governments spend on coal and what they get back. I'm, I can't understand why the um, influence of this industry has been so large because actually it's not the great money spinner that they make themselves out to be. And clearly the cost of not acting on climate change is, is truly astronomical. Mm.
Well, well, okay. So, I, when I, you know, I'd sort of recovered over the holidays, and I, I didn't get any emails about climate change, and I deliberately didn't read any books about it for quite a long time. But now I've come back to it. And I think 2016 for me, the the, the key words for me are things like rehabilitation, you know, of mines and of, of structures too in society that, that we had, like public transport and things like that. Restoration of forests and restoration of trust in democracy I would like to see too. Like a restoration sort of idea and renewal, you know, renew our energy grid, for example, so that we can accommodate the new solar power that's obviously people are voting with their roofs. And, and so we renew and rehabilitate and I'd like to know, you're a lawyer in your background, and I'd like to know what laws do you think we need to protect, you know, what we've got and to restore and rehabilitate, you know, to get a sort of regeneration theme going on. Like, like you have post-war, you regenerate. Yes. Well, I, I like your assessment there, Vivian, and I agree with it, and I, I hope that's what this year brings. Um, but, boy, we need a lot of law reform. Thank you to Sen- Senator Larissa Waters, who spoke to us from Queensland. The one big problem and the one absolutely intractable issue as far as technological measures are concerned is aviation. There are simply no technological substitutes for flying. Um, we, there is no fuel which um, doesn't have an even greater impact than current aircraft fuel, kerosene, has at the moment, which, which in any foreseeable future, 30, 40, 50 years could be deployed, and there is no new engine on the horizon either, which is far more efficient than the, en- than the jet engines we have at the moment. It's, it, it looks bleak when it comes to alternatives to flying. I looked into the possibility of ultra-high-speed trains, TGVs or maglevs, and found that their carbon emissions are right up there with those of aeroplanes. That was one of many big surprises in researching this book. Another big surprise was when I looked at uh, the possibility of using high-speed cruise ships to move people around, and I found that their carbon emissions are far higher than those of aeroplanes. The QE2 is about six times the emissions per person of, um, of, of a plane making the same journey. And, uh, all sorts of things came out up in this research which um, I hadn't anticipated, and indeed I found that hardly anyone else had anticipated either. The only the only course of action as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take. And we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough. This is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. Now, love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book, which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people, and you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. <laughs> and I know you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them, and you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. 
And in climate change, we see the requirement for a whole new moral code. Things which seemed entirely innocent, turning on the lights, turning on the kettle, watching telly, all those things now don't look so innocent. All those things involve you in moral choices, in moral decisions which weren't there before. Climate change requires a reorientation of our moral compass. Be that as it may, we, we just can't keep on flying as we're doing. And far from not keeping on flying, the government intends, as I've suggested, for a massive expansion in the amount of flying we do. And this is in complete contradiction to all its other policies. And somehow that's something that we've got to swallow. Everything else is quite easy. Everything else is quite easy to swallow. But that aviation thing is very, very difficult. And I put it to you that the reason it seems so hard is that it affects you. Counter to that, I would say that it only affects people like you. The great majority of the world's people never fly and they never will fly. This is a privilege enjoyed by a very tiny minority, and it's a tiny minority which has the capacity to destroy the planet. The reason that these measures seem harsh is that tiny minority includes you, and it includes me. And that was George Monbiot speaking there, uh, continuing with the theme of a few weeks ago about tourism and climate change that Vivian brought to us with Professor Michael Hall from uh, New Zealand and George Monbiot talking about the incompatibility of uh, air travel with reducing the carbon loading in the atmosphere. That's the show for tonight. We've uh, heard from author Bill Hampel. We've heard from Dee Grebner from The Tree Project and lastly from Senator Larissa Waters with some policy there on transitioning to a new job economy. Thanks very much to the to the team. You know who you are, but uh, I'll just do the roll call. So that's Jody and Teddy and Roger and Miwa. Of course, our intrepid Viv, uh, who'll be back live in the studio next week.